It's a little before 9 o'clock in the morning in late May of A.D. 30. You arrived in Jerusalem yesterday after traveling for several days. You're tired but excited. You love coming back to Jerusalem. The energy, the history, and the temple. You realize that if given the choice, you'd never vote for King Herod, but man, can that guy build a temple. It's incredible. It's beautiful enough to make you overlook the smells of the animals being led past you. You've been counting down this visit for the past 50 days. After all, that's how long it's been since Passover, and you are here to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. Seven weeks, to be exact. Also known as the Feast of Harvest or Pentecost. It's one of the three feasts the Jews were required to come to Jerusalem and worship. You are presenting the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and your heart is filled with gratitude towards God for his provision. As you walk through the city, moving closer to the temple, you look around for familiar faces. Oh, it's the Redelniks. What a nice couple. You know, that man knows everything there is to know about the Torah. If I had a question about the Torah, I would ask Rabbi Redelnik. He knows everything. He doesn't know a thing about farming. I'm told his crops are the worst in the village, but the man knows his Torah. Hey, and it's Rabbi Schwartz. Has he lost weight? Good for him. Good for him. You begin to reflect on the last time you were in Jerusalem. It was Passover. It was chaos. The Romans crucified a man named Jesus that many believed was the Messiah. And then they buried him, and three days later, they couldn't find his body. The whole city was in an uproar. And you think to yourself, I am so glad that calm has returned, and there won't be any kind of drama like that at Pentecost. Suddenly you hear a sound, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It's scary loud. And you kind of brace yourself, you're like, what? was that? Where is that coming from? You're scared, but curious. It sounds like a freight train running through the city, but it can't be that, because they haven't been invented yet. But you think that's what they're going to sound like when they're invented. The sound continues. The people around you are equally confused, but they're curious, too. Where is this sound coming from? There's a group of people in front of you that seems to understand where it's coming from. And so you follow them. And the longer that you walk, the louder that it gets. And then all of a sudden it stops. And it's quiet. It's eerie quiet. And no one can figure out what's going on. The crowd ahead of you looks like they're holding their breath. And then... As quickly as the sound of rushing wind departs, a new stranger sound breaks out. All of a sudden, you see and hear more than a hundred men and women praising God, shouting the mighty works of God. It's a chorus of voices, all speaking at the same time, and yet they're not drowning each other out. What are they saying? You can't believe it. They're praising God for this man, Jesus, who was crucified. It doesn't make any sense. And then you realize something even more remarkable, that you're not hearing them praise God for Jesus in Aramaic, the language that everyone understands. 
You hear someone speaking in your native language, and you look, and you look and say, how does that woman know my language? She looks like she's from Galilee. Those people barely know their own language. God, what are you doing? And the man next to you, hearing your question, says, they're drunk. That's what they're doing. They're drunk. And his answer makes you sick to your stomach. And you think, no, they're not drunk. God is doing something here. And unexpectedly, a man stands up in front and begins to address the crowd. And you later realize that that's one of Jesus' disciples, a fisherman from Galilee named Peter. And his face looks radiant, like he has seen God. And you are hoping that he will explain to you what's going on. Peter opens his mouth and says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. And you go, I knew it! I knew they weren't drunk. And you look at the guy next to you. What were you thinking? Peter continues. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This, my friends, is the birth of the church. This is the day that the promised Holy Spirit came with power to fill God's people all those who call upon the name of the Lord who are saved. And of this church, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And do you know why? Because he has given his church the power to overcome every attack and to overpower the gates of hell. Jesus' final words to his disciples before he ascended into heaven are recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And they say this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this is the fulfillment of that promise. Where does the church get its power to fulfill the worldwide mission of God in a world that is so hostile? It comes from God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's not a little power. It's not a triple-A battery. We have access to the power of Almighty God. It is available to us as you and I live our lives as witnesses of Jesus Christ, of His saving work all around the world.
And so hear this, the Holy Spirit empowers every Christian to overcome every obstacle to bringing that gospel to every nation. That's the power that we have. And in our passage this morning, we see four displays of divine power which enable God's people to be Jesus' witnesses and to so advance his kingdom around the world. And I hope that you are as excited as I am when we're done because this power is available to us. And so if you feel like a weak Christian now, hear the word of the Lord. We ought all to go out of this place, all of us who know Jesus, empowered to be his witnesses like never before. The first display of divine power is God's miraculous provision. And we see this in the first 13 verses of our passage, in the disciples' miraculous ability to speak foreign languages that they did not know. The book of Genesis tells us of God's judgment on the disobedient and arrogant people when God confused their language at the Tower of Babel. He did that in order to prevent them from committing either, even further wickedness. And so that confusion resulted in the ceasing of the temple being built, but it also made Bible translation necessary. Then it complicated the work of world evangelism. But in God's providence, Jesus, on the day his church began, drew Jews from all over the civilized world. They were gathered in Jerusalem at Pentecost. And when he started his church, he wasn't going to do it quietly. It wasn't going to be quiet like a baby born in a manger. This was going to be loud. And it was loud. And I can't help but think how much fun the Trinity must have had planning the day of Pentecost. Maybe one of them said, we're going to need some noise, lots of noise. And another said, fire. How about fire, tongues of flames on top of all of the disciples? And one said, do you remember what, what the prophet Joel prophesied? And another said, yeah, I remember I'm God. I, I don't know exactly how the Trinity interacts, how they communicate with one another, but I do know this, Satan didn't invent humor. So I'm pretty sure that when they talk, they enjoy it. And someone says, let's have all 120 speak in the native languages of all of the nations that we gather. It's going to blow people's minds. And it did. Some were amazed and astonished. And some mocked. Some asked God, what does this mean? And others didn't care enough to ask. And it's the same way it is today. Jesus said, my coming will divide people. There will be those who are for me and those who are against me. It has been that way since his first coming and will be until he returns with power and glory. God's miraculous provision in Acts chapter 2 was the perfect miracle at the perfect time. And it made clear at the very outset of the church that the kingdom of God was for everyone, for people from every nation and from every people group. That Jesus is the Savior of the world and can be your Savior regardless of what language you speak. But not only that, Joel tells us that God poured out his Spirit on young and old and male and female and slave and free without distinction. God says, all who call upon me 
will be saved. And that is why we are to be Christ's witnesses to everyone around the world. And it reminds us of how critical that privilege really is. You know, God still works miracles today. In my experience, they're not as dramatic as what happened at Pentecost. But you know, even stories of Christians communicating the gospel in a language that they don't know is not unheard of. Miracles of healings, the casting out of demons, and other miraculous provision accompany the proclamation of the gospel as the Holy Spirit sees fit. It happens in our day. Whenever God sees the need for some miraculous provision to advance his gospel, it is available to his people. Isn't that amazing? What we need to advance his gospel, God has given us. We will never be able to say to him, well, we could have reached that people group if we had this from you. I could have done this if I had that from you. We have the miraculous provision of God. The second display of divine power is Peter's courageous proclamation. Peter's courageous proclamation. You know, after Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, Peter followed him at a distance. And what happened after that would haunt Peter for the rest of his life. Luke chapter 22 gives an account of Peter's cowardly denial of Jesus three times. The first was when he was approached by a servant girl. And she said, well, this man was also with Jesus. Peter's response was, woman, I do not know him. Second person came to Peter. You also are one of them. Peter's reply, man, I am not. And then the third. Certainly this man also is with him. For he too is a Galilean. Peter, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Wow. Peter followed Jesus for three years. Jesus loved Peter. And Peter loved Jesus. Peter saw Jesus do incredible miracles. Give sight to the blind. Make the lame walk. Cast out demons. He even saw Jesus raise people from the dead. Peter knew that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said so himself. But when Jesus' darkest hour came, Peter was so afraid of what would happen to him that he denied that he even knew Jesus. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. He denied that he even knew him three times. His fear overpowered him. In Luke 22, verse 61, it says that after that happened, Peter and Jesus met eyes. I imagine that's something Peter never forgot. The look on his face, the look on Jesus' face. Then he wept bitterly and ran off. After all that Jesus had done for him, how could Peter be so afraid and act so cowardly? And how can we? How can I? How can you? How do you recover from something like that? I mean, of course, there's forgiveness of sins. God is gracious because of Jesus. But how could God ever use Peter again? In a word, Pentecost. Pentecost changed everything. The coming of the Holy Spirit, the promised helper from Jesus, who would come and give his followers power and look at the power that Jesus 
that Peter received. Peter went from denying that he even knew Jesus to publicly declaring his allegiance to Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, and charging this large crowd of people with his crucifixion. Let's look at what Peter said. Full of the Holy Spirit, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's pretty bold. You know, there's a, uh, there's a term, seeker-sensitive, that comes to mind. There's a school of thought that if churches want to see more people come to faith in Christ, they need to avoid saying anything offensive. Some go so far as to water down the gospel, they don't like to use the words like sin and hell, because those are discouraging. Peter, it appears, did not get that memo. You read his sermon and you think, who is this guy? I didn't read about this guy in the Gospels. Who is this guy? Well, this is the same weak and flawed man as before, but now he is full of the power of the Holy Spirit. His cowardice has been replaced with courage. His denials of Jesus with bold proclamations and declarations that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord and the Christ, and his hearers were responsible for crucifying him. That change in Peter, that courage, that power is available to every follower of Jesus Christ today. It is available to every single follower of Jesus Christ today. So what does that mean? I think it means a couple of things. First, it means that we never have to water down the gospel in some foolish attempt to get our friends to trust in Christ. People are not going to believe the good news if they don't grasp the bad news, that they are sinners who are alienated from God. Why am I looking for a solution to a problem that I do not believe exists? So we preach the gospel. We preach the bad news that we are sinners alienated from God because we preach the good news that Jesus can reconcile you and cleanse you and forgive you and adopt you into God's family. So that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you don't sense your need, or maybe you realize that it's there, but you don't know what to do about it. Come to Jesus. That's exactly what Peter was proclaiming. By the grace of God, it's what Moody Church continues to proclaim. And second, it means never, never say that you cannot do whatever God calls you to do. No matter how hard it sounds, no matter how ridiculous, no matter how crazy it sounds. No excuses are allowed. I have to wonder what Peter felt like before he got up. He must have felt unworthy. He was unworthy. All of us are unworthy. And if he focused on himself, maybe he wouldn't have gone up. But he focused on Jesus. And that's where our focus needs to be. So never say, when God calls you to do something, never say, I'm, I'm too young. Just a teenager. 
I'm too old. I'm too scared. I'm not that bright. I don't speak well. I'm too shy. I failed God too often. Here's an encouraging word. God is fully aware of your weaknesses, even more so than you are. And yet in Scripture, he comes across as pretty confident that he can get his mission accomplished through you. So don't worry. The power of the Holy Spirit is demonstrated in the courageous proclamation of a former coward turned a courageous proclaimer of Jesus. So the power of the Holy Spirit can be shown through you and me as well. The third display of of divine power is Jesus' resurrection. We have his miraculous provision, the courageous proclamation of Peter, and now Jesus' resurrection. Let's look at verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love the way that's worded. It doesn't say that the death couldn't hold on to him, which of course is true, but that it wasn't possible for Jesus to be held by death. I think it's an even stronger way of putting it. The source of life, the source of all life, cannot possibly be contained by something as puny as death. That can't contain him. It's like Jesus gave death an epic beat down, and he ran home to his mommy, so to speak. Death, right? What people are afraid of. Nothing. Nothing to Jesus. To prove his point, Peter quotes from Psalm 16, where David is speaking of his confidence in God. He rejoices that God will not abandon him from the, for the grave. Peter's, David's relationship, excuse me, with the Lord will continue beyond this life. And he looks forward to being in the presence of God, full of gladness forever. But then Peter applies David's psalm to Jesus to show how the Messiah's death and resurrection was all part of God's plan. Even though carried out by wicked men, it was all a part of God's plan. And it is the reason for the coming of the Holy Spirit, for everything they were seeing. Let's see what it says. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter is demonstrating that Jesus' death and resurrection were all prophesied by King David. And in that passage, he continually appeals to the work of God throughout. He wants his listeners to understand that this was said not of David himself, It's proof that Jesus is the risen Messiah. 
what David wrote is clearly not all true of himself. I mean, that's what Peter says. David is dead. You know David is dead. His tomb is with us. It's right over there, in fact. He's rotting there. We could go take him out and see. But it's not true of the Messiah. It's not true of Jesus. His tomb is empty. And we are witnesses of that. And he's demonstrating that with power, God the Father raised God the Son. Jesus' resurrection puts on display the power of God. I think verse 35 is key. God the Father says to his Son, sit next to me in the place of honor until I defeat all of your enemies. As Peter points out, including death, the last enemy to be destroyed. So what does this mean for followers of Jesus? I think in part it's like an argument for the, from the greater to the lesser. If this great enemy of death is destroyed by Jesus, then what could possibly hold us back from being Jesus' witnesses? What can possibly defeat us? Nothing. Nothing. Jesus said in Luke 17, 17 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Some of you know better than others that uh, in a video game, if you get more points, you can get more lives. And so no matter how many times you die, you can keep playing the game. It's an interesting concept. I would like to say that with Jesus, it's even better. You only die once. And after that, you are raised with the same power that raised Jesus to live with our Heavenly Father forever. Think about that for a minute. Think about the freedom of not having to fight to stay alive all the time. That's essentially what many people are doing. They're fighting to stay alive. Whatever can extend my life, diet and exercise, they're going to those extremes. Medical condition, they're freezing their bodies. You and I don't have to do that. If we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fear of death is gone. Paul says this in Romans 8:11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's a promise. Paul says in Philippians 3:10 that he wanted to know Jesus, but he also wanted to know the power of his resurrection. He wanted to know that power in his life. And that same power is available to everyone who is a follower of Jesus, who has trusted in Jesus for salvation because now the Holy Spirit lives inside you. It's completely different. And as we yield to him, we receive the power of God to be witnesses of Christ in the most complete and total sense. And in all circumstances, no matter how difficult, even if they lead to pain and death, and we see that, we hear that in the stories of our brothers and sisters who are being martyred all over the world every day. We are free to live our lives with a sort of reckless abandon, knowing that if we give ourselves completely over to the will of God, that he will provide for us. He will bring us home to himself forever. Like Jesus, we will be raised from the dead. And so let me ask you, as I ask myself, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What is God calling you to do for his church? And what are you waiting upon? Maybe it's fear. He has given you the power to do it through the Holy Spirit. 
power that brings life from death. Do not be afraid. Whatever God calls you to do, do it. The final display of divine power in this passage is gospel transformation. Miraculous provision, courageous proclamation, Jesus' resurrection, and now gospel transformation. In Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This message that Jesus has entrusted to his church is a powerful, life-changing message. How will Jesus' church be built? By men and women who are far from God, encountering the gospel through witnesses of Jesus who are spirit-filled and spirit-empowered. That's how it's going to happen. In fact, through the power of the gospel, even mockers can become believers. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And the Holy Spirit empowers every Christian to overcome every obstacle, to bring that gospel to every nation on earth. And it started on day one. This message is powerful. It brings people from death to life, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 2. Through Peter, they heard the gospel. They were confronted with their guilt. But they were shown God's provision in Christ. And the text says that they received his word and they were baptized, which is shorthand for saying they fully obeyed God and they trusted in Christ. And they were added to the church, which means they were part of God's family. They were saved. And it says it was 3,000 people. Isn't that amazing? Think about it this way. The power of the resurrection was shown in Jesus physically raising from the dead. And now the power of God in the resurrection is displayed spiritually in the lives of 3,000 people on the first day of the church. And it's never stopped since. That power of God is active throughout the world all the time. In God's perfect timing, bringing thousands of Jews from all over the world so they could witness the the power of the Holy Spirit. They can be convicted of their sin and trust in Christ and then bring that gospel back around the world. It's amazing, isn't it? The wisdom and the plan of God. Let's look at the text, beginning in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They've, they've gone from saying, what does this mean? To what shall we do? They know what it means. What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Isn't that gracious? Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is what it's all about, Moody Church. This is the mission that God has given to us, and he has given us the power to do it. 
individually and as a church, we proclaim Jesus Christ, the whole truth of the gospel. We plead with people to turn from their rebellion to God to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Remember what Pastor Michael said last week. If the mission of your life isn't the mission of the church, then you are wasting your life. That is a sobering thought. So what does a Holy Spirit-empowered church look like? I think there's four things. Number one, it looks miraculous. You see the hand of God everywhere. Number two, it's courageous. You see God's people doing difficult things empowered by the Holy Spirit. And number three, it's life-transforming, life-giving. You see the power of the gospel all over the place. You see the resurrection power of Jesus exalted and put on display. And finally, it's transformational. It's transformational. You see changed lives all of the time, all around you. You hear their testimonies. You see it on their faces. You see the changed lives of the gospel. And the Moody Church will look more and more like that as you and I yield ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, it might look something like this in your life. When God tells you to tell your coworker about Jesus over lunch, and you say, I, I can't do that, Lord. I'll be mocked. I might even be fired. And the Lord says, but she needs to know that I love her. And you pray. And you trust him. And he reminds you that you don't work for Chase Bank, Home Depot, or Apple Computer. You work for Jesus. And he gives you the power to do what he is calling you to do. You live in the Spirit's power. You don't live in fear. Or maybe you're sick and you're praying for healing and the Lord says, I will heal you, but not here. I'm calling you home. And you say, I trust you. And you're at peace. And that peace is witnessed by the doctors and the nurses and your unsaved friends and family members. And because of that peace, because of the power of the Holy Spirit flowing and showing through you, they repent and trust Christ. What about as a church? What does that look like for a church? I think about that a lot. I think about what Moody Church would look like if we were full of Spirit-empowered believers. And if you're convicted by any of this, may that just be the work of the Holy Spirit. I want you to be inspired by this as well. Several years ago, I had the privilege of touring Lawndale Christian Community Church on our city's west side. If you're familiar with their ministries, then you are impressed what God is doing through them. They have a residential recovery program for people struggling with addictions. We walked through a medical center that would blow your mind away, that a church started that. They have a gymnasium. They've got after-school programs. They're building homes, like real houses, for low-income people to help get them out of poverty. They even have a church-run Lou Malnati's Pizzeria. I mean, that says it all. We don't. Maybe we're going to be held accountable for that on Judgment Day. I don't know. We ate there. Volunteers from the church are, are serving so that the proceeds can go back into the community. You know, we're not talking about a social gospel that puts the good news of Jesus Christ on a back burner. 
We're talking about putting the gospel on full display, putting the power of the Holy Spirit on full display in the lives of God's people so that the truth and the love that you and I proclaim are matched by our actions. A Lumel Nadi's restaurant's not going to save people. The gospel of Jesus Christ will. But the lives of God's people who are fully given over to the Lord, who are empowered by the Spirit, who live their lives clearly changed by God's Spirit, man, that, that's an advertisement for the gospel like no other. If you are a follower of Christ and you yield yourself to the power that is available to you through the Holy Spirit, nothing can stop you from being Christ's witness. Nothing. Not your job, not your money, not your hobbies, not your fear. Nothing can stop you from doing whatever God calls you to do. From being a powerful witness in the lives of the people that you know. Nothing. And my friends, we can't let it stop us. I, I, I fear that we have. P please hear my heart in this, and, and I hope that you just don't think it's a pastor talking about money again. What we hear is that the evangelical church gives an average of 3%. Not, not a tithe, not 10%, 3%. Our budget is $7 million. What if our budget was supposed to be $21 million? What if God said, I've given you work in the city and it's going to cost $21 million a year, but I've given you the people and I've given them the resources? What could we do with $14 million more a year? How many missionaries could we send to places that don't have the gospel right now? How many ways could we demonstrate tangibly that the gospel makes a difference in people's lives? I mean, I imagine us doing tutoring in this city to so many schools that they say, we don't, we don't need any more tutors. What if we went into the hospitals, or into rehab centers, into senior citizens' homes, and we read the Bible to people all the time, and we invited them to trust in Christ, and they knew that Jesus loved them because of the power displayed through the people of Moody Church. I, I just, I think there's a lot more that we should be doing. And I think we're afraid. And I think if we yield ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit, who knows what he can do through us? It's going to be marvelous. A church full of people like that will do great things for God. Great things in this city. You and I have a mission. You and I have a mission from the Lord. So let's get on with it. With the overwhelming unstoppable, inexhaustible power of God through his Holy Spirit. My friends, be the church. Be the Holy Spirit-empowered church that you and I are called to be. 167 hours. Every hour we're not in this sanctuary together. Be the church. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that what we walk away with not my words, but your words. And that we are perhaps first convicted that our hearts are, are cut. And we come to you confessing that, that we've been afraid. And I pray, Father, that we would yield ourselves to the power that is available to us. We would seek you and your power to do your mission. We want to be your witnesses. Not lukewarm witnesses. Not witnesses with little power. Witnesses with great power that you desire to show in and through us. Father, may that be true of Moody Church. In Jesus' name, amen.